0: Okay, welcome to another episode of Logical Podcast. Today we got John Colton, who is a software engineer at Datadog. Uh, He works on the Metrics Platform Automation team. John, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm doing well. How about you? Yeah, great. It's always exciting to you know interview graduates, have them come back and talk. And so your your story is really interesting. I want to get into it. Especially sort of the varied experience you have, um, a lot of different roles. I think it's always interesting for uh, launch school participants and even launch school graduates to listen to as people, you know, navigate their careers. And I think that's what we're trying to do here, right? Trying to uh, form a foundation so that people can go forth and navigate their careers. And you've done that. So you've been out for a couple of years. Um, Before we get going, because when we do talk about people's jobs and careers, I, I feel like a lot of people are just like, well, who is this person right and and maybe they're coming from some amazing crazy background so fill us in a little bit just quickly about your background prior to launch school.
1: So growing up I was like always into tech um, built computers in high school played a lot of computer games and that kind of thing and I actually thought I was going to be in IT maybe doing like uh, system administration or maybe just like hardware work on IT for a long time. I had some people when I was younger tell me that programming was really boring. So I just like had this self-limiting belief that maybe I didn't want to do that. Um So then I got into college and I took MIS as a degree, which is an acronym for Management Information Systems. It's pretty much just like a general IT degree. Um And so while I was in college, I found out about UX design. And UX design, user experience design, is like this field that's... um focused especially on software products and about someone whose focus is on the user's experience of that product. Usually in daily terms means that you're working on UI and that kind of thing. Um, so found that while I was in college and did an internship while I was in college. And then actually after college, I became a full-time um, UX designer. And it felt like a good blend between the tech that I was interested in
0: and like very light programming too. Give us an indication of like what what is the... Stack of a UX designer, like what technologies did you use? Um, it's not quite a like graphic designer where maybe the skill set is like you have to have a drawing background. It'll be Illustrator, um, but it's not like a front end developer, which is like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, like web development. So the answer to
1: that question is highly dependent on the size and type of company that you join. Um, If you join a larger company, there'll be people that are UX designers, and their entire job is researching users and writing a lot of docs around like. What our user, us, our user persona is and how the system needs to work and how people expect it to work. If you go to a smaller, like y type place, oftentimes you're going to wear a lot of hats as a UX designer. And where I worked, actually, um, the UX designers were also basically UI developers. Like I did all the HTML and the CSS um, for our okay. the app that I worked on, um, and even dabbled a little bit in the JavaScript too. So
0: yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, that word that you use, personas, definitely uh, I'm aware of in sort of the agile. In fact, we have an agile book on our open bookshelf right now, and we cover personas. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> um, it's it's uh it's a tool that's used also by like product managers, um, as they try to oh, formulate yeah. yep. um uh, product features and product use cases. Uh, so UX. So, okay, you were you were on you were already doing, I would say, maybe light front end development. Um, you know, doing web, yeah, web yep. page design along with yep. UX, like page flows. Like what happens when you click this button, right? Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. Entire like billing flows, like, oh, the user needs to come to our system and sign up. But what happens if like they don't make their payment and they log back in? Like how do you present them with a way to get back into the system? Like all kinds of flows like that and those types yep. of things.
0: Whenever I had to build my own product, when I had my first startup, back in the day and also logical.com, frankly building logical.com. uh the hardest part is actually that it's like what do i do what happens when this button's clicked what happens when that link is clicked with that tab it's it's really not like building the feature once you know exactly what to build and and the, all the features and consequences side effects that should happen like building the feature is not not doesn't take too long
1: yeah, um, yeah you're right yeah. so
0: so the hard work here is actually like figuring out what should happen and and like this email gets generated, okay, who 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 gets the email? Like how everybody or um, all those little edge cases are really hard to think about. Um, and how long did you do that for? Um, and also tie into that, like how come you you, you decided that you know one day must have been like I want to I want to go one step further here and and uh, I shouldn't say one step further as of, as if it's a spectrum, but you know you you you, you want to get into the programming side of things. So after
1: college I worked full time as a UX designer for about 3 years. Over that 3 year period, I would say I was about like halfway through that 3 year period or so. Um I just got more and more interested in the tech side of the product that I worked on. So like the the way that our company set up teams even, I worked directly with developers and like I would show them the designs and give them the designs and they would be implementing them and sometimes we'd have to tweak the UX of a feature as they're implementing it. So I got to like, I basically sat beside two developers all day. Um, And I got more and more interested in the the engineering side of things. Like, okay, I, I know how to design an app now. Like now I'm super interested in how do you make one of these apps work? Developers would always be having these conversations with each other and our product manager because it was one of those places with like an open floor plan where they're talking about things like, performance considerations of a feature or like, Oh, we can't do that because of X and was always just super interested in those conversations and got more and more interested in it over time. Um, to a point where at some point I was just like, I really want to know how to do that stuff. Like I want to be able to do it. And I don't know for sure if like, that's what I want to go and do full time, but I do know I want to go and learn more about how that works and like h- how all that
0: works. Okay. And that, that that's how you found school, or, um, How did you find launch school?
1: So I knew that there were these like programming boot camps out there. Like that's the terminology I heard thrown mm -hmm. around at the time. It was like 2017, 2018, I think that was like the term everyone used. Um, So I started trying to find some of those aggregators of courses, some of those sites. I think the one I went to was like Course Report. I want to say, yeah. Um, And on the site at the time, you could kind of filter by different criteria, and my criteria were like. It has to be work at your own pace. It has to be remote friendly. It had to be what I considered like cost effective. And then um, one final bonus was that like after I had narrowed it down and it was to a couple of them and I found Launch School, the crazy thing was that Launch School taught Ruby for the back end, Postgres for databases, and then JavaScript for the front end. And that was the exact stack of the company that I worked at. Mm. And so I was like, okay, like it, it already became apparent that it, if I go do this, like I'm going to learn a skill set that even aligns with what I'm doing day to day, which was a nice thing. And then, um, the other thing that, uh, the other thing was like, I, I did the, um, the intro course, which was free. And even before the intro course, like the prerequisites, I loved that in all of the marketing material, it was more about convincing you. Here's all the reasons why you might not be a fit for launch school. than it was about convincing you to do launch school, which I found incredibly refreshing.
0: I, I think people, um, Mention that a lot. And and they say, Oh, that's great marketing. And I, and I think it's not it, it the reason why it's written like that is because the same people who wrote that are the people who have to answer questions, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in a lot of places, those are different folks. And if they're different yeah. folks, then I'll write anything, because I'm measured based on <laughs> conversion, and clicks, and I'm not measured on, like, I actually have to go answer to answer a question here. (laughs) I have to go help this person, actually, right? And so for us, it's all the same people. Therefore, uh, we know that we pay the price, right? It's not another department that pays the price for, uh, you know, getting people too hyped up coming in and and like, we have to do code reviews and we have to <laughs> help people. Um, and I know you're telling the truth because I've seen you
1: in Slack answering those questions.
0: <laughs> right. And if you've been here long enough, you just see me answer the same questions over and over. Isn't that right? Like, it's just like over the years, it's the same thing. So that's why we're like more direct. Just, just for me personally, I'm like, I don't really want to answer the same things over and over if I don't have to. Um. Okay, great. So you found, and, and, and actually, that's very. Uh, Coincidental, because I think Course Report is the only one of these like aggregation websites that we have reviews. Um, We don't actually have reviews like anywhere else, I don't think. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a nice coincidence. Um, Okay, so you found us, came here, went through Core, um, went through Capstone, and your Capstone project was kind of interesting. I want to talk about that real quick. Your your, just your Capstone experience and the project. What was that experience like? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Capstone was um, pretty intense. Uh, it was a lot of fun though. Um, I was in a, I was on a team with two other people, and I think that were there like six or seven people total in our cohort that. It was um, small.
0: Yeah, it was really small yeah, back was, then. Yeah,
1: it, it was. Yeah, it was pretty small. Because we had that many um, students
0: in core, so.
1: Yeah, and I like at that time, uh, I and one other person were like two of the first people to go fully remote through capstone i think there only been a couple of people before us in previous cohorts yeah we made people um, move
0: (laughs) back then right right. yeah we didn't do remote because it wasn't a thing
1: yeah and i remember i actually had a conversation with you when i was trying to figure out whether i was going to do capstone hey can i do this fully remote does this seem like a thing that you think i can do i remember asking you that
0: do do you want to tell people what state you're in or you, yeah, no, I and mean,
1: yeah, um, okay. yeah, I'm in Ohio, and right. not, not a tech, exactly yeah. a hotbed of <laughs> <Right>. tech. <laughs>
0: I'm like, you gotta go <laughs> to New York. Columbus
1: <laughs> more so, but not in my area. Um, right, but uh, yeah. So then, for our Capstone project, um, we built uh, Mothership. Mothership's a platform as a service. Um, so distinction maybe between a platform as a service and like an infrastructure provider. Infrastructure provider, you can go and like rent a server and then set that server up however you want. Platform as a service is like the next level of abstraction above that, perhaps, where you just kind of hand us your app, and then we run your app somewhere on the internet that you can get access to it. Um, so comparison is like Heroku, um, which maybe yep. people have had experience with. Um, and actually, that's what led us to build it. I think all of us, the first time we deployed an app during Core was on Heroku, and it is and still to this day, to me, is one of the most magical experiences as a developer the first time you deploy to Heroku, It's like one command and mm-hmm. you set an app up, and that's so cool. Um, so that was a project we built. Um, uh, the, like, the big aha moment for us was that we got to the end ahead, had built the project, and then we used our capstone project to deploy a different team's capstone project and that was like a big, like, okay, this is pretty cool. Like, this is really cool.
0: It's like a different I mean. capsule project was deployed on your paths, your Haruku, right? Yep, yep. Um, that's yep. yeah. It's very, very yep. meta and very, very exciting, right? To be yeah, able to fun. say, hey, like, this actually works and it it it, uh, it actually does what it's supposed to do. And uh, yeah, um, and this was this was uh pre COVID. I mean, this was, do, do you remember the year? I'm I'm losing track of the years here.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, this was the fall twenty nineteen cohort. So okay. right when we had finished our capstone project, January twenty twenty, when we started our job hunt, was when COVID started being COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yep.
0: So you so you kind of caught the initial initial COVID and we we didn't know what was gonna happen at that point in time, right? We were just like, Hey, we're gonna go on going on this thing together and just figure it out as we go. Kind of what's happening now, right? We have a downturn. You know, nobody can predict the future and we'll just kind of go together the best we can, right? Share information, support each other and kind of a similar attitude back in January 2020 uh, when you hit the market.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was it was a little wild out there. Um, I, th- I want to say that like in January, there was like a few news reports about COVID and like no one really knew exactly what it was. I don't think companies were thinking about should we shut stuff down? By the time we got to the end of February, yeah. Um, it was unclear what was happening right some people were just like completely not hiring at all some people were talking about laying folks off um mm-hmm. all of that it led to kind of a weird job hunt for
0: sure it was sure. wild yeah let's talk about a job yeah. hunt i i feel like um yeah no let's talk about a job hunt yeah a- any yeah any stories that stand out from that time and how but like how did it um, feel going through it was it like it wasn't positive it was just a com- little confusing right yeah it it was
1: kind of weird um so, like like I already mentioned, um, there weren't many remote-only folks up to then. So, at the beginning of the hunt, it felt really weird because it was like, now I got to go and try to find, like, remote companies that I can apply to, which was interesting. And back then, there wasn't, like, a ton of them, I want to say. Um, and uh, then, then COVID, like I said, COVID kind of ramped up then, end of January, beginning of February, and then it was unclear what was going on. There was, you know... When you ask about stories, one company like flew me out to the Bay Area for an on-site. I felt like it went really awesome. Their engineers were really engaged because one had used like a deploy your own pads type thing, and he wanted to know how such a thing would work. And so like we do like an entire architecture diagram. It was a lot of fun and everything. I got home and then got completely ghosted by that company. Like the only <laughs> the only contact I ever had with them was I sent them the Uber receipts. <laughs> and they refunded it. And I just never said anything else to me. It was so weird.
0: <laughs> so they so they did send you a check for that and never acknowledged that you interviewed there? No, or... nothing else.
1: No, no. No rejection. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Again, like, to their credit, it was so weird then. Like, I know that they had a big retail presence. So maybe mm-hmm. everything got completely shut down with COVID. I, you know, I have no idea. Um mm-hmm. Another, like, the other fun or interesting story was that I had, like, a take-home project during that job hunt, and the take-home project was to build this little, like, web app, so I deployed that web app on my PaaS, and, like, I had bought the, um, when you deploy a Heroku app, you get appname.herokuapp.com, you know? So I had bought the domain Colton app so that I could deploy this thing at... Like com because my last name is Colton. Colton, yeah. And so I sent it over to them, you know, and uh, they just like full on like told me they were going a different direction with it. I mean, to, to be to to my credit, I I don't think my code solution was the best one, but it was still it's still I felt mean, cool you to do.
0: imagine giving somebody a project to do and they do the project, but not only do they do the project, they deploy it on a platform they built, right? and just like i actually remember that and i i was i think i was like giddy with excitement <laughs> to, to hear back from from them and i thought they were going to come back with all kinds of like wow i can't believe you deployed this on your own right and yeah uh, so it's kind of interesting because I, I feel like we're we're kind of going through you know uh, a downturn all the all the people kind of currently going through the job hunt um uh, captain folks having a hard time but one thing that i want everyone to remember is like it wasn't like a cakewalk years prior either i mean every job hunt has a lot of hiccups a lot of problems and there's a lot of things you got to overcome um you know it 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 was it was like every cohort has um like prior to you the tough part was like we didn't really have a strong track record in capstone Mm -hmm. right our our guidance we didn't know exactly how to guide people except to say like you got to go to go to tech hub right New York City, San Francisco preferred. You want to do remote? Not really sure how to guide you on salary guidance and all that, right? So every job hunt, um, every cohort's job hunt is tough. You know, you hit, you hit COVID, um, and that that everyone's confused. Um, So you did find a place though. Uh, You want to talk about how how that how that was, and maybe how you got it and why you chose them?
1: So I got a I got a role at a property tech startup. um, So like real estate space. Um the company was called Knock. Uh it was a fully remote engineering team. And then when it came to why did I say yes to this company, um I did only receive one offer. It was March 2020. COVID was in c- you know, COVID had completely shut things down by that time. And so it was kind of like a I had to make a decision there of do I want to go through like another wave of applications and I don't really know what things are gonna look like a month or two from now versus accept this offer from... So you were job hunting like for about XT. two months,
0: right? From January Yeah, I think it
1: was okay. seven to eight weeks before so we got the so offer yeah. somewhere in okay. there. Um, and in the end, I just decided to accept that offer. Um, it had a lot of the things that I wanted. Um, like I said, fully remote engineering team. I was interested in getting experience with like a service-based architecture. Um, they did have lots of interviews as part of their process, but I really liked meeting every person that I did meet. Um, and then the other benefit, I think, and maybe this is um, the other benefit for me was that I could start in a language that I already knew. One good sign from a company is that they're pretty agnostic to whether or not you already know a language. And that's great. Like, hey, we're going to great people can learn any language. And that's an awesome thing. I think one benefit to your first position being in a language that you already know is that The first time you're working in a position professionally, you are going to have to learn a ton of stuff. And a lot of it is going to be this homegrown systems that you're going to have to learn and terminology around their tools. And it's great if you don't have to do that at the same time, you're learning a totally new language. That's not like a requirement or anything, but it was like a thing that I kind of wanted in that first position. And I got that because I already knew JavaScript and everything on their back end was in um, JavaScript and their front end was in React and all that. So.
0: And how, how long were you there? And, um, you know, what did what did you learn there? How, what, what was your experience working sort of in, uh, like, what was your data like? Was it mostly coding? Was it um, how big was the team? Um, yeah. How, how did you enjoy that experience?
1: Yeah. So um, what, I worked there for about a year and a half, um, somewhere between a year and a half and two years. Um, the team, the engineering team there, fully remote, uh, was somewhere between one dozen and two dozen people, I think. Not not terribly big. Um, maybe like the standout thing was what it was like to work at a startup. Um, startups are great if you have a wide skill set and you'll get praised for wearing multiple hats. Um, I remember one time I was hired as a backend engineer at this in this role um, and there was this time where we were trying to debug uh, a problem in our React Native app, which is like a mobile app that our... Um, real estate agents would use. And so like I got onto a call with one of the real estate agents and was debugging the mobile app with them. And I remember my boss just went absolutely nuts over that. Like he thought it was the wildest thing in the world that I would do that.
0: Wait, like nuts Um, good or or nuts nuts bad? That's good. Yeah. Okay. No, he
1: asked, he asked me to do it and he was just like, I just like, you know, I can't believe how you did that. And it was like, it didn't feel that abnormal. Like in UX design, like I had done interview calls with users many times Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that in a startup, wide skill sets are really helpful and that you'll often get praised at a startup if you have a wide skill set because they need you to plug lots of different holes and that kind of thing. And really just if you're curious and open to trying lots of different things, startups are a great place to to start, I think.
0: And it's funny because you brought up sort of your previous background in UX, how the skill set and intuition around around the previous uh, work and then you bring it into software engineering, uh, that's a bonus, that's a plus, right? And I think a lot of career transitioners right. who ha- come from a previous like non technical or non software engineering background, they're always like, how do I compete with computer science grads? Well, a lot of the work isn't like you're solving computer sciencey problems, right? A lot of it is just uh, professionalism, communication, problem solving, problem h- solving human problems, right? So if you have that professional experience, you're already a leg up on somebody who has no exposure to that. Um, so, uh, really, really good insight there. Um, so at some point you got an itch to look around or how, how did, how did, uh, uh, or, or, or did, uh, did you just see kind of like SRE as a path for you down the line? Um, and the startup just didn't have that type of infrastructure and data you were trying to look for?
1: So, like, there's a couple different threads that converged here. One of them was while I was working there, um, the things that got me most excited while working at Knock were solving performance problems. Um, we have had this problem there where uh, routinely, like once a month or one or twice, once every other week, or maybe it was once a month—I can't remember what it ended up being—we had this problem where like our database would just completely. Knock o- get knocked over and couldn't figure out what it was at first. Once a month. Wow. Um,
0: That's fairly oh, yeah. frequent.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah. It, w- it was, it was crazy. I mean, startup, you, you, yeah. this is what you get. Um, right. And what we ended up finding out was like, there was this absolutely terrible database query that all of our users made at the same time. And there's like this interesting backstory to why that was happening um, and got to debug, got to debug that um, using some tools and like, Hey, this is really cool. Like, this is the kind of work I'm super interested in doing. Like, this, this gives me a lot of energy to work on this kind of stuff. Um, so knew I was interested in trying to find something in that space. Interestingly enough, I used Datadog as a tool to actually solve hmm. that database problem. And then it was like, I, I knew from working on mothership, I think it's really cool to work on tools used by developers because I am a developer and I can actually have insight into like, I don't know, steering the product in a way. Um, so that's what kind of led to being interested in SRE, but also developer tooling. So then, like I said, about like a year and a half, close to two years in, I started um, looking around the job market at that point. looked like it was like abnormally good at that point. So then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try applying around. Um, I did apply multiple places, but most of them were places where like there was a focus and the product that they offered was something that was sold to developers. Um, and then, you know, after that um, was when I accepted the role of Datadog.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, and I think that's really good insight in that. If people are saying, well, I, I, I'm interested in that too. Uh, what you just said about first being a developer so that you have context for the problems, that makes that second jump into a company like Datadog much, much easier. Because you, when you on, on interviews and at work... You can talk about, as a developer, this is the context I had, as a user of Datadog, right? Whereas if you've never used this tooling before, it it's, ca- can be hard to understand. So for our listeners, who are mostly illogical students, uh, let's take a step back and can you, can you describe what Datadog is? What problem does it solve? Um, li- like, why is it public? Uh, why is it a public company, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so Datadog is what's called an observability platform. Um, observability already a word that it's like, what does that even mean? Um, I think to unpack that though, I want to talk about this concept called telemetry. Telemetry is not something that's specific to even software. Telemetry just refers to using an instrument to take a measurement and then send that measurement to a different place. And like the, maybe the classic, um, the classic case or example for telemetry is aerospace where, hey, we're sending a rocket into space. And we need to know all these things about the rocket while the mission's going on, right? Like the velocity, the direction that it's headed, the load on the engine, right? The temperature of the engine, that kind of thing. Um, Take that same concept. I need to know all these things, but I can't be there to observe it firsthand and apply that to software. You have software running on servers somewhere and you want to know how it's doing. You want to know when it experiences an error you want to know what the load on your CPU is. You want to make sure that you're not introducing a memory leak into your code or something like that. That's really at the core what um, observability providers offer. Observability isn't even really a new concept because we've always we've always had a lot of these observability tools, right? Like one of the tools of observability is logs. And if you've written even the simplest program, console.log and you print something, like that is logging in, in, a, simple, in a simple um sense. Uh, and so observability is really just about getting insight into how your code and your systems are running. Um, and Datadog provides tools for that.
0: I think there's a whole, a whole like uh, generation of products along with Datadog, like Splunk, you know, um, that that kind of uh, facilitate this, right? Because back in the day, back in the old days, what did we do with logs? We processed them, sure, but not immediately. Like we moved the logs, you know, there's log rotation on a server uh, that you, because yep. it fills up the hard drive, right? So you got to rotate yep. your logs periodically. If you have a big website, perhaps hourly or daily, uh, if you have a smaller website, you can be more infrequent. But once you rotate the logs, you move them out. Where do you move them to? Somewhere. And then you like slowly chew on it with yep. some, something, you know, like a mainframe or something like that, right? You just like slowly work on it. Or... Most startups or smaller companies are just like, you just throw it away, right? You just, lose, away, yeah. you just lose the insight. You just lose data. You just, and and yeah. we don't even consider that, um, you, know, you know, like data you save in a database, right? But you just lose the logs. Now, there's a whole generation of tools where they're saying, hey, wait a second. There's a lot of insight into these, lo- in these logs, in this data, right? Why throw it away or why just archive it somewhere to slowly work on if at all? We can actually suck in this data, do processing and then show you, uh, insight. If not real time, then really quick, right? Uh, about, yeah. about your, about your system. Um, and, and so, and this, this has turned out to be massively important. And I think we all hear, um, you know, data is the new oil, right? Um, all these AI systems are powered by, uh, data and they need more and more data. Um, and, and, uh, gives us more and more insights, supposedly. So. That's why Datadog is public. <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> it, it's processing oil, right? Um, so you're so you got into Datadog, and before at Knock the you, you were you know working pretty close to customers, working on end user features like mm-hmm. coding features, right? Kind of what people yep. think about when you think I'm a programmer, I'm a software engineer. Right. And at Datadog, you went into a different role completely right? And the role is called SRE, Site Reliability Engineer. Um, yeah, just talk about that that second role at Datadog, uh, the SRE role. Like you said, SRE, Site Reliability Engineer, um, that
1: does mean different things at different companies. And I would even say that it means different things within a single company sometimes. Um, so sometimes you'll Sometimes you'll look at a company and and they have a set of SREs and like these SREs are focused entirely on on call tooling and postmortems and reviewing postmortems and suggesting ways that systems can be improved. Um, some SREs might be more boots on the ground, implement reliability improvements, um, uh, improve the scalability of a system, that kind of thing. Um, so the role that I was hired into was more of a boots on the ground SRE role. Um, At the time, the way that it worked was that there was a team of SREs and each of them would embed on a team of product engineers and kind of be the the go-to person for um, reliability concerns. Um, Another thing that I was very focused on at that time was improving deployments, um, making it easier for teams to roll their uh, changes out to production but also trying to figure out a way to do it that was um, safe Uh, because Datadog is actually deployed to all three of the major cloud providers, Google, um, Azure, and AWS. And so when people need to deploy a feature, they actually need to deploy it to all of those providers. So it gets a little bit complicated how we actually deploy things.
0: Okay, so you're in this embed SRE role and you were uh, embedded with, what you call product engineers which sounds like uh, your t- traditional software engineer kind of like your first job uh, yeah, build, yeah. building features so you're kind of embedded in there and then on top of that was was this so that uh, your SRE team can then come back together collect sort of like uh, compare and contrast what all the different product engineering teams are facing and then like um, consolidate best practices or is that the idea?
1: Yeah so the, the team that I was part of was kind of a set of reliability engineers for the metrics product and so each of them each of us were embedded on one of these metrics teams because the metrics product is made up of multiple teams um and so it it is exactly what you said we would try to find similarities um between these teams in in what they needed and what challenges they faced and then kind of create either a standardized tooling for them or b we would try to standardize the processes around doing things like running migrations or Running deployments, right? and sometimes that's actually about writing docs as much as it is about creating a system for them. Um, so there's a little bit of both of those things that's interesting that's yeah.
0: that's I mean that's so interesting because that's still like it's still the same process where you're trying to figure out what your customers need in this particular case, your customers are internal software engineers internal teams, yep. right exactly. in your first job, you were talking to end customers, real estate agents and trying to figure out. You know how they use your product and what issues they're seeing, but here it, it's it's like the same approach, but you but your customer set is different, right? And yep, exactly um, that's that. really interesting. Yeah, you it almost sounds the way you describe it, it almost sounds like you're a you're like a special agent, you know, like a born identity Matt Damon on uh <laughs> like with special skills on a on a traditional software engineering team, and then you, you know you come back and and uh, talk with your special agent, special forces team, and, and then give them, hopefully the idea is give them better tooling so that they can be more productive later, right?
1: It is funny you say that. I feel like sometimes the product engineers would talk that way too. But the truth of the matter was that a lot of product engineers I worked with, they knew more about Kubernetes than I could scratch the surface of. Like we use Kubernetes to deploy, which is mm-hmm. like this entire way to run containers. Um, And that's, that's the neat thing about it is that it's less about... Um, someone having a massive skill set and more about what is this person's focus and about like what you can achieve while being given a month of focus on a reliability problem. You can really,
0: you can really solve a lot of problems. That's really interesting. So maybe uh, can you compare and contrast that? I don't know if this is an appropriate question, but like the tech stack. So in the first job, I feel like we understand that, right? It's JavaScript, Node, React, that type of thing. Pretty familiar um, for your SRE role, what technologies are you working with? So, at the time when I
1: joined, the focus that I had for the first, I'd say three to six months was almost entirely around improving deployment tooling and the way that their uh, deployments were set up and that kind of thing. So this was a lot of um so the company deploys apps inside of containers, and those containers we run um, in Kubernetes. And it was a lot of work in Kubernetes. Um, there's like a layer of abstraction over Kubernetes where it's like, hey, you have to define all of these YAML files. Like that's Kubernetes is just like YAML files forever. Um, Helm is like a system on top of that that allows you to write a template and then render a bunch of those YAML files, basically. So like a, basically like a blog where you design a page template and then you just create many pages based off that. Um, so I worked a lot in Helm. Um, And then on top of all of that, the kind of build system that we use at Datadog is called Bazel. And um, it's really kind of a derivative of, uh, not really a derivative, but it's it's modeled after Python in terms of what it actually looks like. So that would be like in, uh, that would be in contrast to something like maybe Rake in uh, Mm -hmm. Ruby,
0: in a Ruby world. Uh,
1: So those were a lot of what I was working in when I first joined Datadog.
0: Okay, and and just for listeners, I, I really don't want people to go start learning about Kubernetes. I mean, that's just that's not the point here, right? <laughs> <laughs> the point is, uh, you'll be ready to work on these things as you encounter them. Like you didn't know Kubernetes before, right? No, no, yeah, I um, hadn't.
1: I hadn't even worked on it even after capstone at Noc. Um and then I came into DataDog, and it was the first time I had worked right. Kubernetes.
0: Right. Yeah. A question here about SRE. So there's a lot of terms here that. Um, uh, people new to software engineering have to learn and disambiguate. So one common one is like system administration versus DevOps. And now we have a new term, SRE. Like, are they all similar tasks on the spectrum? Or are they, are they different enough that it's kind of like a tree structure? Or how, how do you think about these three things?
1: Part of me thinks that the field is still new enough, that there's a lot of nuance into what the field actually, like what the term actually refers to. So that's part of it. I also think if you ask two people at different companies that are both staff level SREs, what SRE is, they might give you different answers. And also you're going to get a different answer. If you're like at a staying company, like a Google or, um, you know, an Apple or something versus if you ask someone at um, any other company, but um, having said all of that, the way that I like to think about it is that a lot of the problems that you think about in the DevOps space and the system administration, system administrator space, If you presented those problems to a software engineer and said, how do we make a system to handle this? Or how do we automate this process? I think that like the types of solutions that you're going to find are going to be similar to what an SRE builds and focuses on um, would be like how I think about
0: it. Yeah, I think it's very similar to like programming too, and like programming, Versus software engineering, like these can be. I think it's like degrees, yeah. right? Like, um, for example, system administration you can do on one server. Like, you perform system admin tasks. If you went around, if you set up one server and then you later said, "I'm an SRE," I think people are like, "No, that that doesn't sound right." Right? Like, if, <laughs> if they dig into it, and they found out you're just right. like managing one one VPS, right? One um, one server. Um, so it's like degrees, like it's trying to indicating degrees of like where you're operating. So if you're saying if you mention SRE, it doesn't it all like almost imply you're working at like a certain scale?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes at a startup you just won't even see SREs because they're not at a point where they're starting to think about
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay, we have this ops problem, how do we create automation around it? Or how do we create a system that means that we don't even have this problem anymore? Um, oftentimes you're not thinking about that, but like probably not universal, but yeah, that that's what I would say in general. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we we've heard about your background um and going on the SRE team. Uh do, do you feel you're doing okay? Are you uh like you have enough skill set to to contribute positively and also like what are the other backgrounds of your teammates um on the SRE team? Um and I think really the question is here like as a as a somebody in core right now um can can they get there uh one day? Oh, yeah, I think anyone with enough patience can
1: really get to any role in software that they want to like i I don't think there's any reason innately that would preclude you from working in software um but how do I feel that I can contribute? We should ask my teammates that um <laughs> joking aside um i when I first got the datadog, um uh, it was pretty intimidating. I came in on a team where over half the team was either. Like My direct manager and multiple of my peers were either ex-Google or ex-Facebook engineers. And I was very intimidated by that when joining the team. Um, and everyone who wasn't was from a background where like, they had a lot of software engineering experience at other great places. Um, but what, what I will say about it is that in my experience so far, every time that I've joined a team of really excellent people... Um, if they took the time and decided to hire you on, like they're invested in you and helping you succeed. And it will take time to get to a place where you feel productive, even in your first role. Um, but, uh, your team is almost always invested in doing that for you. Um, and yeah, with here, I've gotten great feedback about um, being able to contribute and, um, and, and yeah, again, be able to contribute by basically, um, on everything that I've worked on so far. So I do feel like I will say this. Um, I think that capstone prepared me more for my second role than my first role. Mm. Um, because I feel like I, uh, I feel like I use a lot of what I learned in capstone uh, at Datadog. Interesting. I, yeah, I used it as well in my first role, but I do feel like without capstone, um, I wouldn't been completely in the deep end of mm. <laughs> taking uh, this role. So,
0: yeah, that's how I, I kind of compare and contrast core and capstone is like core is more programming, um, coding and capstone's more what happens when you deploy, right? Where's the, yeah. wh- where's the, what happens to the data when data meets code? Um, and you're, you're, you're feeling that it's funny that you're like your first job is more coding oriented and then your second job is more data oriented. Right, and you're kind of you're going the full spectrum of like, um, what, what, what I think people um should hopefully experience in their careers, um, and you're doing it in the first you know five years of your career. Um, I forgot to ask this question, but I ask now, uh, and I've been asking everybody; it's been pretty interesting to compare and contrast the answer here. Um, every everybody on the podcast for this season. So, how many hours do you code a day? And, and for your first job at Knock, and then your second job now at DataDoc?
1: Oh wow. I need to think back on my first role, how many hours I was coding. Um, when I first started in my first role, almost all my time was in coding. And then towards the end, it turned into a lot of like docs um, and planning out OKRs, right? Mm. Planning these, what are we going to do next quarter? What feature, how are we going to accomplish like this feature? There's a lot less coding towards the end of it to the point where I feel like towards the end of Knock, it was like a quarter of my time was coding maybe.
0: Hmm um
1: at datadog i feel like it's pretty consistently been uh around half my time is in talking with other teams like helping them with problems and like half my time has been coding although i will say that there's been a few portions where i've worked at datadog where like i had to head up some migrations so that was less writing code and more like running alterations yeah. and shifting things around. But um
0: that's about how I would yeah. slice it. But even coding is like not typing, right? And so sometimes you, no. you, you in this stereotype you're like, I'm coding. It's like pumping out code. That's you know, a lot of times you're like reading documentation and um figuring out, you know, debugging and debugging is like code tracing, right? You're like tracing code and at the end of several hours you've pumped out two lines of code.
1: I mean wouldn't wouldn't you say even when you were writing code I feel like I read code like four times more than I actually write. Oh, yeah. like
0: Way more. I'd say like Way more.
1: 80 or 90% of the time is reading the code, even when you're coding. And the other 10% is like the five lines you add that turns on the thing you wanted the whole time. So
0: honestly, if I, I there's one, ga- well, okay, there's a lot of gap. We, we're rigorous, but there's a lot of gaps. And I, I'm always like trying to think about it. The reading code is one of these things that I'm like, I want to force everyone to do code reviews. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't want to get dinged where they're like, oh, you're just trying to. Get people to do launch school's work, right? <laughs> but, but because our TAs consistently come back and say, that's one of the best benefits of being a TA is that they were forced to read code. And then now, mm. you know, once they go to work, they're like, I can read code so much faster than what they expected because of my TA experience. So, um, yes, I absolutely think that's true. It's not just,
1: there's like a huge benefit in reading other people's code because Mm -hmm. they're going to write differently than you. And, um, sometimes you'll start reading it and think it does one thing. And the further you get along, you're like, oh, I glossed over the beginning because this is not going the way I expected. And learning that learning how to read other people's code is a skill that you will need to develop and to work at a company.
0: Totally. And so, um, yeah. So when, when, it, when people say that I'm code, I code like eight hours a day or whatever, five hours a day, a uh, lot of code tracing, code reading, documentation reading yes. and trial and error, right? And then typing, of course. Um, okay. And so last time we talked, you mentioned that you are yet kind of transitioning to another role within Datadog, um, not a, not a strict SRE role. Uh, Kind of going back a little bit more to a traditional software engineering role. Uh, you want to talk about what that is? Is it, is it is it not quite as similar as the feature building role at Knock, but a more traditional yeah. software engineering role?
1: And I guess this is this is what's interesting when we ask what what site reliability engineering and engineers are. Um, is that so? At some point, our team actually decided to rename and refocus um, from a reliability team to a platform automation team, um, a lot of what we focus on didn't drastically change. Um, We were kind of already starting to focus. So we had kind of pulled out of our embed model. We no longer embedded on on these engineering teams. And part of why we could do that was because we had been embedded for a while and we learned a lot about the challenges that teams faced and like what we actually needed to build to build automation for these teams. Um, So we decided to pull out of the embed and then we were focused on, okay, what's the most impactful piece of automation that we can build for them? And then we set to building that as a team. Um, however, I think that it like if you showed some people that are also part of SRE what it is we do every day and asked, what kind of team is this? They might say, Oh, that's an SRE team. They might say, That's a platform team. Like, I think that the line, line's kind of blur and there's overlap there for sure. Um, but I would say that. It's kind of like what you originally, um, the way you are originally articulated is that I think we just view the other engineers as our customers and like we're building products for them and we want them to succeed and, um, we want them to succeed using our tools. So
0: yeah. And this is so common where people who leave big companies, uh, big tech companies, um, they'll, the biggest complaint is like we lose all the, these like, uh, quality of life tools that we used to have and that's because you have these teams inside the company building those quality of life tools Mm. uh, for them and that sounds like what you're doing and also it's really interesting to see your progression um in that this team you're on now it's building um automation tooling uh, but it's all these experiences are from being embedded uh as an sre right and now you're you're it's almost like yeah we we, we at least know what to do next, right? We've gathered enough intel or information. Uh, now it's time to, to build those things that we, we've, uh, we've learned from. Um, and it's almost like we're, we're several steps in where it's kind of, it's kind of hard to get on this team now. It sounds like not from like a technical standpoint, but just from a, like a institutional knowledge standpoint or context awareness standpoint, right? It's like, um, is that, is that true? Or like, like you've, you're like several layers in, I feel like where like working at NOC, for example, feature building, right? Um, JavaScript stack. And then that gave you the context for being an SRE and then now further in being embedded into other product engineering teams now gives you context for building these tools.
1: No. So what you've identified is a, how do I say this? It's a gap that we know about, so so we do have to hire people. Like we can't just find other people at Datadog that we can yank onto our team. So we have hired externally, but um, it's kind of been, it, it's kind of been a conversation among our team is that like ensuring that we find a way to uh, educate folks on the on these challenges that we're building solutions for when maybe they never got to be part of the embed model. And that's kind of like been a challenge that our team has worked through. Thankfully, um, there's like one other person on our team that has just a great depth of knowledge about, um, the system. And like, I was one of the people from the embed as well. So we've been able to help kind of lead, um, the road mapping for our team, but like it is a, it is a challenge that we knew about. And we'll say this too, now that we started to build the automation and tooling and, and we've built the system out that w- like we would like, um, we don't have to lean quite as much on knowing all of the problems because, like now, we've just defined how the system should work, and there's like less there to learn. Here's all the ways it was broken because now we're actually building a working form <laughs> of the yeah. of the world, so to speak.
0: What is your tech stack now? So before it was at uh, at, at the startup JavaScript, then SRE, a lot of Kubernetes server provisioning tools. What what yeah. what is it now?
1: We still interact quite a bit with. Um, Kubernetes, Helm, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple more layers added over time though. Um, so we now also work, um, in Go. Uh, so we write, um, workflows to automate moving infrastructure, turning infrastructure on, turning old things off, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we write workflows to do that in a tool called Temporal. Temporal is basically like a workflow engine. Um, You define a workflow, you run a workflow with inputs, and then it either completes or fails. And if it fails, you can retry it. Um, One of the benefits that Temporal gets you is that as long as you follow its rules, the workflows can be retried without negative side effects, so to speak. Um, So that's a tool that we use quite a bit of. We use a bunch of additional kind of infrastructure tooling Um, Like in addition to the Kubernetes, um, we use a tool called cloud native application bundles, which is just a word salad, um, which basically refers to if Kubernetes wraps containers, um, you could think of CNAB or cloud native application bundles as the next wrapper on top of Kubernetes. It is not just how do I wrap up these containers, like how do I wrap up all these discrete pieces into a large application and service? Um, so those are a couple of pieces that we work with. We still use that tool I call Bazel, um and, and a few other things. But I'd say a lot of like the application level code that we write now is mostly in uh,
0: Go. Yeah, great. And once again, no need to go off and learn Go if you're listening and, and you're in core, <laughs> All right? One step <laughs> at a time. So um, yeah. All right, we're finishing up here. Um, been a- again, asking everybody this, and I think it's a fun question to ask, which is give me give me an idea of your day-to-day from like you wake up at what time, what do you do in the morning, what do you do in the afternoon, <laughs> and then sign yeah. off.
1: So I do work remotely still at DataDog. I guess I never explicitly mentioned that, um, but I get up at about 8 or so. Um, I start work at around 9, 9.30, something like that. Around, uh, around 12 or so, I take about an hour for lunch and then finish up in the afternoon. Day to day, what I'm actually doing during that time greatly varies depending on what project we're working on. Um, I feel like I get my best coding done in the afternoon. I feel like in the morning, that's when I'll like, um, get reacquainted with all the open threads from the previous day. A lot of my day, I feel like is on Slack. Like a lot of my day is on Slack, <laughs> as a lot of people probably feel like. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and then my team, it, just, it depends on what day it is. Our team does have a, day, uh, have a daily stand-up um, at about like 10 o'clock or something like that in the morning where we get together and talk about what we did yesterday and what we plan to do today. And then throughout the week, it just depends on the day, like one day um, a week we meet and talk about all the incidents that happened for our org in the last week talk about
0: what happened and what action items might be are you all um on call at all like rotating on call schedules or no so when i was embedded on a product team
1: um i was on a rotating schedule where you would get a you would get a rotation once every 6 weeks and it would mm-hmm. be 24/7 that was yeah. very interesting um, our team right now we have a business hours on call, mm-hmm. but that will probably expand to that will probably expand in the near future as teams rely more on our tools and our systems that we build. So
0: that's always the double edged sword, right you You want to work on great. impactful software. You want to work on work on things that um, people depend on. Well, then. You gotta you gotta be around all the time.
1: You learn um, a lot being on call twenty four seven. You really do. You learn a lot about your own systems, but you learn learn a lot about just how to respond to issues, I think, by being on call. I, I think it's a beneficial thing. I wouldn't say
0: that people should always be on one, but I do think it's a beneficial thing. Try it sure. <laughs> try it at least a couple times in your life, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um and we'll just end it with one last question, which is what what do you what do you find um, what what do you most appreciate about your your team and and the company datadog
1: i work with um i work with some of the brightest folks and they are all so kind and approachable like i can ask folks anything um even if it seems like a dumb question maybe um and they'll just unpack it and explain it and i just think that's a a great amazing thing cuz i think there, there there, aren't many dumb questions. Like there's there's many questions that maybe I've asked in the past where it's like, I could have done the legwork to figure it out. Like, and maybe that's not a, but most of the questions that make you feel dumb when you're new at a company or something like that, they're not dumb questions. And everyone's asked that question because they're new to the company. And um, I just think that's awesome. That's one of the things I appreciate about the team. The thing I most appreciate about the company I work at was that, um, or is that, Datadog has a very mature approach to dealing with incidents. And I've never, I've seen some really, really bad incidents happen before. And I've never seen humans blamed ever in any of the, and always the, the incident remediation is the focus is how do we build the system so that a person can't make a mistake or so that the system just doesn't break this way in the future. Because the truth is, like when you expect people to make the right choice, like maybe it'll work for a long time, but sooner or later, like a mistake's gonna be made. And relying on systems rather than a person to hit the right button, it's just so much better. So I really appreciate that, and that's really a testament to um, the people who have set up um, the postmortem process at Datadog. They've done a great job of creating those principles.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. That's that's exactly you know the type of environment that that brings out the best because you feel safe, right? If you don't feel safe, then all of a sudden you're guarding information. You're protecting yourself. You're always doing CYA action. I feel like so much of a confusion. When I think back on my corporate life, the confusion that I've experienced among people, the way people communicate and all that. If you think about that, they're doing defensive action. It makes sense, right? But if you, otherwise it, it, you got to have the environment where people feel safe and and people feel valued um and that if people were to bring to light an issue even one that they caused there's not going to be you know immediate um like a beheading or something right like it's it's n- otherwise people are not going to not going to do those things so
1: and when people don't feel afraid they get like so much more excited about building the system in a more resilient way right and then mm-hmm. it's less about like how do we move this thing from this place to this place and more about like building the system so that we don't even have to move the thing anymore. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like how do we roll the rock up the hill the fastest? Why don't we get rid of the hill kind of idea?
0: Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective too. Um, all right. We right, we're, we're already at the hour. So thanks so much for have, joining the podcast, John. It's been amazing. And I think your journey here has been uh, really, really interesting and and quite instructive i think in a lot of ways and how you've navigated your career i've always said when you finish law school it's going to unlock a lot of doors it's going to allow you to pave a path for whatever direction you want to go it doesn't have to be the path that you went down which is the sre path um, it could be a different path too but you you have to perform just-in-time learning you have to be ready for it um, and you have to be interested in it so um uh, happy to see you do that thanks so much yeah thank you thank you
1: yeah, I would just say to everyone listening, like uh, Launch School was just a great experience for me. Um, Whether that's core, whether that's capstone, whether that's the introductory course, I really think that you can find value in any bit of it. And like what you had just said, Chris, um, you don't have to get in any one particular space of software engineering. Like front end is awesome. Back end is awesome. Infrastructure is awesome. And all of these places have... Uh, all of these places have concepts that you can spend your entire career learning and having fun. So, um, yeah, anyhow, have fun with it. Have
0: fun. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. Bye. All right. Thank you.